I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode 131. I'm your host, Moto G. Pete. With me is your other host, Swiggy. You. And we are coming to you from northern Colorado. The, let's see here, we're in Nokomoto headquarters, which is Moto One Podcast Network Studio. You know what? We've been knocking down walls, so we're pretty much taking all of the third floor. So if you hear some echoing sound, that's what's going on. I needed more room to stockpile all the beer that I'm not drinking because I'm I'm trying to not drink. Usually I go from New Year's until my birthday. No, no, I go from my birthday until we go to Coda without drinking so I can drop some pounds for the road trip. I've already started it this year. So as you could imagine, the beer is building up pretty fast. It's taking up a lot of room. It's a hassle, to be honest. Um, although I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink two of them for this episode. I've earned it. I've had a tough day. But yeah, it's a lot of beer. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather be responsible for like a quarter ton of millipedes than all this beer. <laughs> well, can you imagine what a hassle that would be? All right. Anyway, so uh, in this episode, uh, we are going to do best worst bike in the world this week. And then we're going to explain a list through time of Honda patented technologies. You know, those things that Honda has names for that you kind of know about, but if you're really honest with yourself, you may not be able to explain to somebody how they work. Things like VTEC or ProLink suspension or the human-friendly transmission. (laughs) All that kind of stuff. And it's going to be fun. So, Swigs, you ready to do Best Worst Bike? I am. All right, here we go. Man, two and a half minutes and we're getting into it. So here's how this works. Each week, we each pick a different motorcycle. It's going to be the best or the worst bike in the world this week. We alternate who has what. We never know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. Now it's happened that people have become triggered and outraged about the choices that we've made. Okay, just deal with it, okay? Remember, like Mama Klobman once said, there's no crying in motorcycles for the win. So, Swiggy, you have best bike in the world this week. Yes. Cool. <sighs> you know, <laughs> let's start this beer. I don't know why. Like I, we just spent who knows how much time doing last minute research on our bikes, <laughs> and I forgot. Okay, you have. But you, you, are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is the 2020 Kawasaki Ninja 1000 SX. Oh, okay. I uh, I can't remember if I liked the regular Ninja 1000 or the SX. So lay it on me. So, important thing to keep in mind, this is not 
the ninja motor. This is not the 0.01 cc sub liter motor. It's a little bit larger. It's a 1050 motor. It's highly detuned. I think they just they just added like a millimeter to the stroke and then just detuned it and dropped uh, the ratio from like 13 down to 11.8. So is this possibly a version of the engine out of the old Z1000? Uh, possibly. I'm not sure. But the reason I chose this bike is because it's a little bit of a dying breed. And it's something you don't really see anymore. Because what this is, is this is just a compromised superbike. Yeah. Like a proper compromised superbike. This is doing at the one liter level what a lot of the 650 bikes were doing. Uh, what the what the super sports are doing in terms of horsepower. Well, right, the but... 650s versus the, the 600 super sports. This is sort of doing that at the one liter bike level. Um, this is, this would be more like an F4i compared to standard CBR 650R or 600R. Okay. So, you know, rather than 200 horsepower at 84 foot pounds of torque, this is 125 foot pound, uh, 125 horsepower at, with 84 foot pounds of torque. So... It's doing that, and it's doing it for four grand less. That's pretty compelling. So, because the t- that's still going to produce a top speed of like a uh, hundred and fifty-five. It's something like that, yeah. Now, the reason this is sort of a drop, you know, if you look at what kind of the old man bike is these days what's being marketed you know if you look at what honda selling and what and what uh yamaha are selling in this category it's the tracer it's the nikon it's the uh the gold wing it you know this is for the 55 year old guy that wants a sporty bike and hasn't gotten fat yeah, it, this is for the guy who hasn't let go yet. I like that guy. <laughs> so, you know, at 125 horsepower and like 84 foot-pounds of torque, what this really is, this is a sort of a, a modern version of something like the Superhawk or, say, the Futura. Those are, it's essentially just slightly improved numbers uh from a compromised v twin from 20 years ago yeah but it's just using some light some heavier parts that are a little bit cheaper to manufacture instead of being 450 pounds it's 500 pounds but you also still get you know the same uh or similar body work it all fits into what you would, at a glance, recognize as a superbike. It looks like a big-ass Ninja 400. Yeah. But nobody else is selling this sort of thing anymore. 
I mean, technically, there's the GSX 1000F, but that's kind of got Angry Bird syndrome going on. Yeah. yeah. But besides that, there's nothing in this category anymore. You know, we used to get the CBR-1000F. We had, you know, the Futura or, you know, the the comp- the other compromised Melee. We had all sorts of different kind of compromised leader bikes that were a little bit better ergonomics, maybe taller handlebars, and some other things. And, you know, just a little bit less horsepower, but generally the same torque. Uh but otherwise looked like sport bikes. Yeah, they looked like super bikes. But they yeah, don't I'm, anymore. So we sat on one of these at uh, IMI. Uh, I am, no, no, what's no. it called? IMI is the, the dirt track around it. What, what was it? I, IMS. I sat on one of these at IMS and I loved I was instantly like, ooh. Because I, I thought to myself, I haven't sat on a sport bike that was this comfortable since the last time I was on a 90s sport bike is right. what I thought. I thought this has got a great big wide seat that's that's going to help you go further. And this has I, – I love how Kawasaki does what I call riser clip-ons, right? So they're clip-ons. They're, they, they clip onto the, uh, onto the forks, but as they come out, they go up an inch or so. And it's just that difference – of them coming, rising up an inch or so, and then coming out straight, and even angling down and out like sport bike clip-ons do. So you feel, you've got that feel of sport bike clip-on handlebars, but just being a couple more inches up makes all the difference. It is the difference between after 60 miles going, okay, well, this was fun, to, oh, I, I could do 400 miles today. Right. It, that It's all in the handlebars for, for me, right? And this, this bike has them. And, it, and if you're just walking by the bike, it looks like it's got just full-on track clip-ons. But then you actually get on the bike and you go, oh, I see how this works. So you're really not compromising anything in the, the look of the bike for for that one nice little amenity, right? Right. It's a big deal for me. Yeah. And I mean, you're not going to be, you know, anybody who knows what they're looking for is not going to be fooled by this. But at a glance, you know, across the street, it looks like a super bike. I don't know. There's so many bikes these days. I think a lot of people might get fooled into thinking, I mean, if you just don't tell them that this is every bit as as crazy as a ZX-10R. I think your average person off the street, and even a lot of people that don't know a lot about sport bikes, you know? There's a lot of people, you, you underestimate how many people go out, they want to buy a motorcycle, and they just buy the motorcycle at the nearest dealership that looks the coolest to them. Mm. And then that's all they know about bikes, is their bike and they don't know all they don't they're not in it as deep as we are right and all those people are this looks every bit the part to those people as a zx10r does yeah 
Yeah, they're going to see you go, oh, it's one of those crazy crotch rocket guys. So you get it, it has a lot of that street cred. It's an unbelievably small number of people. Well, also, it totally is up to 70 miles an hour. Because how you know, how high up the, you know, how long does it take for that extra horsepower to really kick in in any appreciable way? Like it. Yeah. Like, okay, your your quarter mile is going to be 0.4 seconds slower, but okay. I think I remember the guy IMS saying this has quite a bit of amenities too. It's a good bang for buck. It's got a lot of your computer stuff. It's got the ABS. It's got the cornering lights, which is really nice. Uh, I think, you know, their factory luggage options, which I remember him saying wasn't as like crazy expensive as luggage normally is. I thought he said it was like 800 bucks to add the, the, the two bags to this or something. It may have been a thousand, but it wasn't like, you know, when you want to put Honda bags on something and they're like, that'll be $1,800 please. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a little bit cheaper than that, but yeah, it was. It was pretty reasonable. I remember thinking I, I wouldn't be out of my mind to add the bags to this from the dealer. Um, yeah, like I said, it's got it's got the full uh, was it full color uh, display interactive display on this? Because uh, this is a pretty new model. Well, personally, don't know, don't care. Yeah, yeah I'm with you, but I'm just saying, like, it's got it's got rain mode and and uh, oh, all the yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. it's got all yeah. the stuff, right? It's not it's not a bargain bike, right? Um, but you're essentially you're essentially getting what you're realistically going to use a ZX10R for, except it's more usable and it's four grand less. Yes, yeah, I'm with you. I'd have this instead of a ZX10R. Every day of the week. It's not even, it's not even close. And I, I thought it was actually more comfortable than the concourse. Uh, you know, is it more comfortable over a thousand miles? I don't know, but like around town for a day, I think it's more comfortable, which is a weird thing to say, but I think you know what I mean. I I do. Yeah. No, I like this. I was imp- I was impressed by this. This was probably my favorite thing that Kawasaki had at IMS this year. I think it was. And it's just the right it it's the right level of Kawasaki styling, right? Like this and the Versus 650 have kind of kind of owned their look and everything else is a little too futuristic for me from Kawasaki. This looks the perfect amount of ninja. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Are we ready to move on to worst bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay. Oh my gosh. I've hit this so many times. Why can't I? Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is any year, but I'm going to bring up the 1958. Moto Guzzi Galetto. Oh boy. Now it must be said that in its time, this was a very beloved thing. In fact, it sold unbelievable amounts. 
This oh was boy. made from 1950 until 1966. Guess how many they sold? In 1950, uh, I'm going to guess like 2000. From 1950 until 1966, they sold over 70,000 of these things. Okay. Okay. So bring up a picture and describe this to our listeners because it is it is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. It looks like two different people designed this that never met each other. Yeah, this Okay, so Oh, here we go. Imagine somebody took like an old set of Harley Davidson handlebars, like off of like the original like 400cc single model, and then strapped that to the front of a Super Cub. And then somebody chopped that in half and welded a Royal Enfield Bullet 500 frame onto that. And then somebody replaced the rear fender with an old Indian fairing, an old Indian uh, rear mudguard. And then somebody had that converted into a Hot Wheels model. And then somebody took that Hot Wheels model and reinterpreted it and recreated that as a full-size bike. You're not totally off. So this is a motorcycle in a very loose sense. (laughs) Um, Well, this is a great bike. This is a great bike for that game. Is it a scooter, right? Because the first thing that most people will notice about it is it has front leg shields like a like a Vespa or a Lambretta or na- any other scooter, right? It's got a very Vespa-ish front. But then the next thing you notice is it's got 17-inch wheels, which are just completely out of proportion, right? So, so, so you notice a little bit of super cub action going on with it, because uh, it's got the leg shields. But then it also has full floorboards, but it's not step through like a scooter, except it is because there's a large, I guess, frunk for lack of a better word, stuck in the middle there. But just so a woman could ride it back in the fifties, that is removable, and it's a sort of. St- it's not leg over and it's not totally step through, but there, but it does become at least semi step through. I guess it becomes step through. So it, it, uh, it does have a four stroke motor. It's a flat motor. So the engine is in between your feet. It's got, uh, it's, it's 192 CCs making seven and a half horsepower. It's, um, let's see here. I mean, it's, 
it, it's not a bad little motor for the time, 192 four-stroke making seven and a half horsepower. But, you know, you're looking at 35 miles an hour, but it's the 50s and it's Italy, right? They're starting to get their shit together, but guess what? Those 17-inch wheels with the leading link front suspension and the long travel for the suspension at the time are going to come in handy, as are the mudguards. It notably carries a spare 17-inch tire in between the leg shields and the front mudguard. Yeah. It's hard to understand how the steering works even whilst you're looking at it. So, okay, so so what's what's motorcycle about it and what's scooter, right? So let's start at the front. Uh, so very motorcycle. It's got 17-inch tires. It's a, it's a two-and-a-half 17 in the front and a three 17 in the back, I think. I mean, we also need to throw a pedal bike factor into this equation. The handlebars are very pedal bike. I'll give you that, but they're not, they're not unlike motorcycle handlebars of the 1950s. You know, these could have been interchangeable with some, some motorcycles at the time. So it, it clamps the, the, it's got bolt on like clamped on handlebars, which go through a single down tube at the front and then split and then meets up with a triple tree uh, at the bottom of the column. And then goes to proper split forks, right? So that's very unscooter. It's got leading link suspension, um, which was common on bikes and scooters of the time. It's got a a very uh, Honda Super Cub looking front fender. Let's see. It's got it's got a scooter horn, and even and uh, later models had a very um, scooter ish cover for that front horn now it does have a uh rabbit ears mounted front headlight very motorcycle for the time and it's 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 a pretty big pretty big headlight for the bike (sighs) okay it's got a clutch um to make it more weird it's got this contraption has a factory heel toe shifter on the right hand side no one knows why. It's kickstart only. It's got incorporated front storage. The gas tank is built into the leg shields. So if this was a Vespa scooter, the gas tank is where the glove box would be, which is weird. It that's not great for your center of gravity. That's not, I mean, and it's also less than two gallons and it looks massive. It looks like it should hold more than two gallons. So, anyway, yeah, it's um, so moving further down, it is chain drive, drum brake front and rear. The back of it has it, it's what they call a bathtub style on the back of it, it's much like a Triumph 21. So that was much more of a motorcycle thing at the time too to have this great big giant back piece to the uh to the bike rather than having removable panels and um you know the whole monocoque of the bike being built into the rear fender. This has a a just really really massive rear fender what they called the bathtub 
like sort of style. And they called them bathtubs at the time. Cause if you took them off and just put them on the ground, they looked like a bathtub, like an old Victorian bathtub. So, uh, let's see. It's got, um, no turn signals. It's the fifties, but it's got a little light back there. It's got split seats, uh, with the rear seat mounted on top of the fender. That's very motorcycle. And there you go. Now you've got to stop right now and just look up a picture of this thing. I've told you how, what it looks like, but you're really just not prepared. Now, this was a genius thing at the time, and it was very successful for the same reason that Vespas and Lambrettas were successful and very successful for the same reason that Honda Super Cubs were successful. But why do we remember all the other vehicles on this list and not this one? Maybe because the others weren't designed with it at the speed and with the desperation of a World War II half track. Yeah. This is this is so fucking weird. This comes from the factory as a Franken bike. Exactly. This is a Franken bike and only in a sea of early scooters and no proper motorcycles could this thing be cool, best-selling, and desirable, right? Only in the vacuum that is post-war, like newly post-war Britain, only in that vacuum of of luxury and style <laughs> could something <laughs> like this succeed, right? Right. And – it, 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 in 1966, they promptly killed it because Moto Guzzi was like, we are done with flat engines. And that's when they started moving on to their uh, their shaft drive and their V-twins that they're famous for now. So this really had to die for Moto Guzzi to become what they are now and, and have always been in a way or what they were always moving towards. <sighs> so... I, this is this is um, building. Th- this is so uncool. This is for people. the The only person that would have this today is I, I imagine like model railway enthusiasts would sort of like the aesthetic of this thing. Yeah, like because I'm also because unlike getting the like- unlike the scooters and stuff, all the rivets are exposed. You know, so it's got a very sort of 1950s train feeling to it. I think this is a, this would kind of appeal to the Italian equivalent of the Cushman Eagle uh, fetishist. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a rolling disaster. Now, here's why it's the, another reason why it's the worst bike in the world this week it might be the worst bike in the world this year because what you need to google now is 2020 moto guzzi galetta concept and what's going to pop up is a gas electric hybrid modern interpretation of this thing and it is somehow about 50 times uglier 
It's like they only kept the worst parts of it. Well, what what would you take from it? Uh, <laughs> well, they didn't they didn't keep the frunk for starters. That would have been a great thing to keep. Uh, they they somehow decided to keep the little ridges of the uh, and, uh, but cut away most of the bathtub. So you've got the whole top of the bathtub, but not. It, I, it doesn't really function as a rear fender. It it's terrible. It, they kept like why not incorporate the uh, the headlight? They kept the 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 rabbit ear mounted headlight. Why? Right. Um, the they kept the awkward angle of the front mud guard, but somehow shrunk it down and in the whole front looking very similar to the original. Why don't we get a spare tire here? Um, yeah, <laughs> there's also the front, uh, the driver's seat having the, uh, a spring loaded seat aesthetic without any springs. Yep. And then, it, uh, by the, by the mid sixties, the front of this bike did get more elegant. It got very Vespa styled handlebars. Like it all became a big unit handlebar thing, which was, which suits the bike better. And it got the horn cover. So it kind of, it started getting a little less ugly, but they decided to no, no, let's go back to the old exposed bicycle handlebar look on this one. So, uh, also, as I looked at this, I thought, hmm, why is there a little picture of a rooster with Galetto on here? And so I had to go, oh, yeah, what does Galetto mean in Italian? It means cockerel. Not rooster. Cockerel. It means baby rooster. That's... What? Okay. And so in in that name, do you know why it has that name? Why? Because this contraption has a 50-inch wheelbase. It is smaller than a Vespa. This whole time with those 17-inch tires, you were looking at this thinking, oh, it's a motorcycle with scooter features. It's smaller than scooter-sized. It we- it's made of a lot of metal from the 50s, and it weighs 260 pounds with a 51-inch wheelbase. That's really heavy for a 51-inch wheelbase. It is tiny. The fact that it has two seats is... I mean, unless two Japanese girls are riding this. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah. Why do we want to bring this back? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, bring back the the Lambrettas and the Royal Ally. Sure. 
All right, Vespas never stopped and are making some of the greatest things they've ever made right now. The new Honda Super Cub, hey, it's not for everyone, but the people that it's not for aren't taking a giant shit on it, right? And they still praise the motor. Nobody wants this. I mean, like... Nobody wants this. I'm willing to give leaded gasoline another shot, but... (laughs) This may be a bridge too far. Yeah. Now, by all accounts, the motor, it's, it's, it's pretty reliable... Uh, you know, especially for something from the fifties in Italian like that, it kind of chooches along at seven and a half horsepower. Like I'm not, I'm not faulting the drivetrain because they used it in other things as well. But this is such a Franken. I've never seen more of a Franken bike than this. That this is this was so specific to its time. It doesn't work now. It's not even real. You can find... Okay, I found one of these for sale with an exotic specialty Italian importer in Florida. And there and it, there's a concourse perfect one that they're selling for like six grand. They're like, this is the top of the mountain, six grand. Like, it's not collectible. It's not... And that's it's only that six grand because it's just so fucking weird, you know. Now there there might be some group of people, you know, at like the quail or something that stop and look at one of these and they're like, oh, cool, you know. But but there are also those people that are, you know, go right by all the muscle cars and all the cool '60s British stuff at car shows. To go look at the fucking um, cars with, like, handlebar steering and shit. No. You know, like, fucking, like, crazy German shit with, like, you know, six-person names on it. And, um, you, you know, things that don't even really look like cars. And they actually know what is what. And you're like, that's just a level too deep, right? Most people won't go past like the fifties in cars, right? And right, and there are plenty of like nineteen thirties and forties motorcycles that I think are really super cool, and fifties bikes too. But this doesn't fit any of those aesthetics. Like if you were if you were seen riding this, no one would really know what time it's from. They wouldn't be like, "Oh, cool fifties bike, man." They would just be confused. It's it's not fast enough to be in any kind of traffic. It's not going to be reliable enough to use for like little jobs and things. You can't go get groceries on it anymore or anything like that. It really has no function, right? We were saying our Vespas are great, but they're really towards the end of something like that being functional because pretty soon we're going to move into electric stuff that can just go from zero to 30 so fast that the scooters are just irrelevant or will be. Uh, this you can't even there, there's nothing to use it for you would only buy this just to have it to look at but it's no good to look at <laughs> right i mean this is such a confusing shape like may, this might be the this might be the shape that will get those fucking pandas to fuck because we've tried everything else right <laughs> Yeah. Um 
I mean, really, there isn't like there isn't a single line through the whole bike. No, it's not like visually or conceptually. This is like this is sort of like like this resembles any sort of coherent aesthetic the same way that like your your kindergarten aged child's picture of a duck might look like a duck right it's distressing yeah okay i i want to move on Okay, let's put a little break in here, and then we'll come back with the main topic. <laughs> and we're back. So, I don't know what we're going to call this segment, except maybe, Honda, reveal your secrets to us. So, we are going to go through some Honda patented technologies. And we're going to tell you every, basically this, I know this, here's the name of the episode, everything you wanted to know about VTech, but we're too afraid to ask. So we're going to go through two Honda. I'm going to generously call valve based perf- engine performance systems. <laughs> and then we are going to do two Honda, um, suspension systems. And then, Honda's uh what 30 year quest for working motorcycle automatic transmission maybe even 40 year quest so let's start with a little system called VTAX this is V-TACS which as far as i know only made it into one vehicle It may have been in some others, but this was a so we're going to have to do a second episode that involves technologies from other manufacturers. And we did an episode like this a long time ago, but we didn't really include enough. I think we talked about um, some of this Honda stuff and also brought in like a um, Desmodromic valves from Ducati. It was sort of a segment on uh, technologies that you don't know how they work, but we're doing just Honda ones right now. And then we'll do other ones like Yamaha's X up and things like that. And um, the V max system and all that in a different episode. So just Honda gets its own because there's quite a lot. Um, so VTAX, this is a two stroke exhaust valve system that, went into a little scooter called the Honda beat. And if I start talking about the beat, I'm going to go on for 20 minutes. So swigs, just tell people the, the endearing things about the Honda beat. So the Honda beat is a little 50 CC two stroke scooter, liquid cooled, liquid cooled with a weird, sort of the radiator is built into the front leg guards no 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 it extends over the front wheel it's got like a i don't even know what to call it (laughs) it's 
it it's a bizarre sort of like a cross between like a forza and an elite yeah it it's it's i don't know the front of it kind of looks like a giraffe's head (laughs) anyway so it's this weird looking scooter and it's got it's got uh, these fake (laughs) torque and horsepower lines built into the speedo and it's got a little light so somewhere around three thousand rpm it's got this little light to come on to tell you to push this button on the floorboard that kind of looks like a brake pedal. And all it does is it opens up a valve in the exhaust system, allowing for better airflow. Now, this is hardly surprising because very, very many two-strokes have a system like this. It just happens for you automatically. <coughs> either with vacuum pressure or by electric servo or whatever. This is an extremely common thing, but it's foot operated. This is just simply the automatic system that was already available in plenty of even like Suzuki dirt bikes from the seventies. This, this was more than common. Honda actually de evolved the technology and made it operate by foot switch, which is the endearing thing about this scooter because you're like, well, it's a good thing I'm here to press the button at the correct time because someone else is likely to fuck it up. Right? <laughs> I, I can be trusted with this vehicle. <laughs> it's so wonderful. So Honda, but Honda bothered to patent this and and copyright a name VTAX <laughs> and I, no one knows what VTAX stands for or means if it means anything um i don't know we we had to include that in the list because that is one of my it's one of my favorite honda things ever we we haven't talked about the honda beat for what probably like a year and a half so, yeah, thereabouts. So I, I I needed to bring the Honda Beat back into our world. Uh, so okay, here we go. VTEC. Ooh, let's explain to people how VTEC works. You wanna you wanna start? Uh, yeah. So VTEC is kind of an early mechanical implementation of a technology that's largely electronic in a lot of cars now or is has some sort of servo operated mechanical system as opposed to purely electronic i guess that's really just a koenigsegg thing yeah koenigsegg has the yeah the electric valve lifters yeah it's it's a weird thing right so basically it's In the same way that, you know, you want to adjust or delay, you know, spark or um, how far you open your valves or your valve timing on your motor to get the most power and efficiency at different RPM ranges. This is an early, purely mechanical way to optimize it um, originally in uh, their cars and then transferred over to a bike in the VFR. So what this system is, is essentially a way to have two cam lobes on the same um, 
Yeah, on the same cam. Yeah. Or two cam lobes on the same bar. I don't know what you call the... What do you call the bar that all the cam lobes sit on? The cam shaft. The cam... There we go. Yeah. On Highly the cam- technical <laughs> term. <laughs> on the cam shaft. And then selectively choose which one will actually operate uh, the valves. Now, it's funny because... So... You you have to know a, a few things about how you know uh, overhead cam works. So you would imagine, well, that's simple. You would just have a cam with lobes on it, and then a second set of lobes, and just shift the cam over. But you can't do that because all of the valves are opening in line and they're opening and closing at different times. If you shifted the cam over, you would just break a bunch of shit, right? So, uh, well, there's also, um, I mean, you can well, kind, what you, you need to understand is that, is that the, the cam lobes don't just directly press on the valve stem. What they do is they actuate, uh, the the lifters, right? There's this intermediary piece between the cam lobes and the actual valve stems themselves. So, what VTEC does is when you get to a certain RPM, hydraulic pressure from the um, from the engine oil, I believe, yes, uh, moves. A, a shaft which actually activates on the lifters, the intermediary piece between the cam lobes and the valve stems, and actually pushes them down. And then there's a third lifter in place that will then override the operation of the two lifters and interact with a third cam lobe that has been static in there the whole time. It just could never reach. But then, but like as these lifters are all pushed down, it's the, the third lobe is then able to interact and get you your alternate timing. And it, 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 it makes both of the, uh, the other lifters act in, in, uh, in unison. Now that was all technically correct, but that's really fucking hard to imagine in your mind. Well, I will correct you a little bit and say that it does. Uh, well, oh, now I'm afraid I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, it doesn't increase. It doesn't change the valve timing. It changes how much the valve opens. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> right. So, so what? What? What's the reasoning for this? You can get more air through the engine. What it does is when you move to these valves opening more you essentially change where the power band is. You, you know, you change your everything, the where you're making your peak power up a few thousand RPM, right? So the engine is built with this sort of, really the engine's built with this peak performance in mind originally. What you're able to do is also have great power at a lower RPM, as well because if you didn't have this system you would just tune it for just top end power or you would have to compromise it and make something sort of in the middle with this you get something better low and better high yes and this is just kind of a 
a fun byproduct of the way that the Japanese domestic market works, you know, how insurance works, how, how taxes work, and just basically the Japanese trying to get more power out of a lower displacement. And then we end up with cool tech. It's, it's sort of the same way that, you know, fuel efficiency ends up driving Formula One tech over time. Right. Okay. Before we say something wrong about VTech, let's move on. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. people will get angry when you fuck up VTech. Uh, so let's move to suspension. Let's start with let's start with anti dive because you were reading about this a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. Explain the Goldwing anti dive forks. So it's actually a surprisingly simple system. Uh, and it's really just a few additional parts that have to be added on. Um, you'll notice this on all the Goldwings that have a shroud over the brake cover. So I, I don't know if it started on the eleven hundreds. I think it is the eleven or twelve hundreds had at least a a version of this. I think yeah. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. So basically, this is just a, a concept to say, you know, what might be nice soft, you know, smooth suspension while dry while riding may not be the best suspension to have while braking hard. Especially when your bike weighs 850 pounds. Yes. And that's all slamming forwards. Now, this is essentially anti-racing technology. Yeah. (laughs) But what this system is, is essentially, um, if you look at the, you know, where your brake calipers clamp on, you know, sit over your brake discs, they're usually completely fixed in place. What this system does is it allows a little bit of slack so that the the brake can move can basically just rock, you know, a quarter of an inch or so when it latches onto the brake and uses the brake to drive it. And then it has a little bit of an arm coming out at the bottom that when fully locked in place will roll on and press a button at the bottom of your forks. And what that button does is that it changes the size of the aperture of wh- through which oil passes through the separate chambers of your front forks. And what it does is when you press it, it changes it to a much smaller aperture so that you can have nice, soft, floaty suspension when you're going down the road and you can hit potholes and have your suspension be very reactive to that. But then when you press the brakes, it completely changes the profile of your suspension and makes it so that your forks won't dive down when you hit the brakes. Yeah. So, you know, imagine you like uh, if you're pulling a net through water, you can just kind of pull it. Now imagine pulling a blanket through water. You can't pull it. Your forks kind of operate like you're trying to pull a blanket through water with a hole cut in the middle. It's going to move, but it's going to move soft and slow. 
right? So this changes the size of that hole in the middle of the blanket you're trying to pull. So it's still a smooth, it becomes very sturdy, but it is moving. It is giving way. It's the best way I can explain it. It's not very good, but. I mean, yeah, that's all correct. I mean, it's uh, interesting. This is also, this is also on the, um, on the PC 800. And I think it was on, I think it was on the CB 1000. I think they had the anti-dive forks and there's basically anything Hondo that was making anything Honda that anything Honda made that was over like 600 pounds in the eighties had mm. this and well, it still has versions of it or well, except I guess the new wing, the new gold wing doesn't has some as an entirely different front end. Um, but yeah, that's, that's Honda's anti-dive. So let's now, God, we're going through these quick. Um, although we're about to get to some that work that are going to take more to explain. Um, Oh, I got a Amazing how you didn't hear that. Okay, so um, ProLink. ProLink suspension. This is a weird one. So this is, again, something very 80s of Honda. Maybe even late 70s. I don't want to say early 80s. Um, so as you normally imagine your suspension, you imagine, uh, let's say it's a dual rear shock bike. You've got two shock absorbers in the back mounted roughly to the swing arm near the back of the rear wheel up to the subframe. This is your kind of standard setup. And then time moves on. We've got better mono shocks and those start mounting to the front of the swing arm to the subframe. Well, that's all well and good for street bikes, but what if your rear wheel really moves a lot, like on a dirt bike? You want a better solution because it's weird to have your wheelbase changing so much. And with so much travel on your rear suspension, it's going to change your wheelbase a lot. Also, you know, what is the, the full length of travel provided by this monoshock? What if you're spending so much time bouncing up in the air? It would be great if your front wheel could even sort of, even even if your ass is moving six, eight inches up in the air, be pressing down on the ground, delivering power. How do you make that happen? Well, so with Honda ProLink, essentially what you have, and of course everyone's got a version of this, you've got your rear shock mounted way lower down. So you get a lower... Um, lower lower gravity and then there's so you've got on one end of so okay so your your shock ends like below your swing arm in fact and then you have one bar um Attached to one side of the swing arm and another on the other. Oof, no, it is, I'm, I'm fucking this up. You've got one double and double jointed piece and then one single joint piece at the bottom of the shock. So as the wheel 
as, as your as as your suspension is up and down, the wheel's really just traveling almost just straight up and down, rather than in this big exaggerated arc. I like to think of it like a floor jack. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's like a floor jack. Yes. Just replace the hydraulic with the shock. Mm. Yes, that's exactly how it works. That We could have saved a lot of time. <laughs> that is exactly how it works. Um, yeah. So, just, yeah, a floor jack that just has a big shock in it uh, is how it works. It's... It's genius. It's wonderful. But this is but but this is Honda Prolink suspension. So of course everyone, every listener that rides a dirt bike is like, yeah, that's not even a special fucking thing. That's just how it fucking works, Pete. Well, street bike guys don't know about this, it turns out. It's like Prolink. Oh, that's cool. Great. Moving on. How how do I get out of this conversation without anyone knowing that I don't know what ProLink is, right? This is a scene that is unfolded in many power sports dealerships until this year, right? (laughs) Over and over and over again, daily. Just someone like, oh, it's ProLink. Oh, oh, great. Cool. What's ProLink? Right? Now you know. Now you know. It's not just a regular shock. It's It's a lever system. Cool. All right. Now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes here. We're going to start with special Honda automatic transmission systems, of which there are three distinct phases in. uh, Well, the first one's embarrassing. The second one gets really fucking weird. And then we arrive. It's something approaching sensible in modern day. So since... The late 70s. Since 1977, Honda has been trying to figure out how to get people on a motorcycle they don't have to shift. Or essentially... Or at least without a clutch. Or more generally, trying to get people to ride motorcycles who don't currently ride motorcycles. So, we could go into Honda's... um, we could we really should have started with the super cub because it had, didn't have a clutch uh, it was an automatic clutch but it, honda didn't have a great name for their for the automatic clutches um or centrifugal centrifugal was it a centrifugal clutch on the i think it was anyway on the super cub anyway the honda matic right so in 1977 honda comes out with a bike called the honda cb750 a Hondomatic, which proceeded to fail horribly. So Honda thought, well, maybe the problem was that it was the 750, and they people weren't just intimidated by the fact that it's it's a motorcycle. They were intimidated by the very size of it. Thus, you get the Prince motorcycle, the Honda CM 400A Hondomatic. That's right. The Prince bike was an automatic. So how did this work? So the engine, the, the, it was otherwise a fairly normal Honda engine, but then the crankshaft literally, uh, just connected to a torque converter, just like the crank of a car, 
an automatic transmission car changes to a torque converter. Now, an automatic car still changes gears as well, and it does it automatically. The funny thing about the Honda-matic is they were trying to get away from you having to shift, but there was no way to get a cool planetary gear system onto the bike. I mean, the bike would have like just, I mean, the engine would have stuck out like four feet on one side, right? So, so the huge comedy of all this is you still had to fucking shift, right? <laughs> so, um, so Every- really all you're doing is getting out of having to pull the clutch. Right. Yeah. So to operate this bike, and we went into this when I picked the CM400A as the worst bike in the world. So so when the bike is sitting there, so, uh, with, okay, you get on the bike, right? And uh, you start the engine, and it's in, heavy air quotes, neutral um, while the kickstand is down. When you lift the kickstand up, First gear is engaged if you have the gear shift in the in the right position, right? And with no throttle, the bike will um, will sit there, and you can hold it back just with your hands and and the brake, no problem, right? So then you give it throttle, and away you go. And then first gear is supposedly good up to about forty miles an hour, and then you shift up into second gear for everything from there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, but so you still have to shift. You just, it's just a two speed motorcycle with no clutch essentially, because you're going from gear to gear through the torque converter. Right. It's not having the gears have to mesh. So I like that they innovated, that they, that they tried to innovate and do something interesting but well, the torque converter looks interesting on the side <laughs> of the bike. I'll tell you that it does. But at first, you're like, "Is this a rotary engine? Like, what the fuck is going on?" Yes, but ultimately, this whole experience is like eating microwave dinners every night instead of learning how to cook pasta. Right. It's you get so much reward for just learning this basic thing of using a clutch. Oh, oh, here's the other thing though. There was a handle where the clutch was. For the same reason there still is one on uh, on modern Hondas with automatic transmissions. Parking you needed brake. a parking brake. So obviously you could imagine how anyone with any riding experience out of pure habit constantly just engage the parking brake whilst riding these bikes around going. And of course, because you don't change from first to second until 40 miles an hour, they would do it at speed. <laughs> well, this is also why on the, on the new uh, dual clutch ones, the parking brake isn't just like right there where the clutch would be. It's like another 30 degrees out so that you can't you can't actually have your hand on the bar and reach it. You've got to like do this whole maneuver. Well, so Honda uh, back in the seventies, because obviously people were going for the clutch. 
I don't know exactly how it worked, but it was something that you had to use two hands to do. Like there was something else you had to do with your right hand was there in like order a to do you it. Had to pull to- right, but people were gla- grabbing for this clutch at like forty miles an hour, and fortunately, <laughs> it wouldn't engage. Right, <laughs> because otherwise, they would just be locking the rear wheel at forty miles an hour. So I can't remember what it, there's some like other thing you have to do with your other hand in order to engage it. But yeah, it, I, it's a really good thing that somebody thought that out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. I, it's so much effort to go through. Cause it's uh, uh, again, the torque converter. It's not small. It's this great big, like UFO on its side, like sticking. It's not, it's not small. And, it's just a whole nother thing. Oh, also the craziest fucking thing about this. It adds on this whole other level of stress to this riding experience. The torque converter did not use transmission fluid or any, it used the engine oil. Now your jaw dropped when I revealed <laughs> this number. So on just the 400, I don't even know what it was on the 750, but because the engine oil was used to cool the engine and lubricate the the bottom end of the engine and then was also used to transfer energy, it was the medium to transfer energy through the torque converter, oil change intervals were under 2,000 miles. And that was on the 400. It, it must have been like 1,500 miles on the 750. I, I, I mean, you're changing the oil like every two weeks if like you're driving to work, right? Look, I'll fucking switch to a suicide shift to add 2,000 miles to my oil change in full. Right. Okay. Exactly. Like, <laughs> well, I definitely went on the Norwich. Um I guess we need to explain to some people what a torque converter is. It's like not even a lot of automatic cars use them anymore. Like so many cars have gone to CVT or or something or else. Or dual clutch, yeah. Or dual yeah. Um, so it's like it's it's so it's a big housing that goes from your crank in between like your engine and your transmission. And what it does is so the crank attaches to an uh an impeller on one side, there's a propeller on the other. Well, yeah, it okay. So let me let's let's put it this way. It's so you know, how does your automatic car not completely stall when you hit the brake and the car's not moving, even though it idles and it moves forward? Essentially, you can imagine like a fan pointed you can imagine that the drive shaft is, you know, disjointed. So there's a there's a clear break in the middle of it. And yeah, you have a you have a, a fluid bath with a propeller and an impeller on either side, and essentially you spin it on one end to make the, the the fluid swirl around to drive the impeller on the other side. Now, this is a horrible way to lose a lot of power. So eventually once they sync up, once they get relatively close they actually like join like a clutch but it's essentially imagine it like like an electric fan pointed at a windmill 
is essentially what's going on. Yeah. And it's just essentially it's a way to have an automatic clutch so that you can use this fluid dynamics to simulate the friction zone. Right. And then also with the RPM of the engine, it does automatic gear changing on the transmission for you as well. But the Honda didn't. So imagine you're driving your 1980s automatic transmission car and you know how you can take the gear shift and just keep it in first or second and you know how like when you were in high school you did that you drove around for like half an hour just moving it from first to second (laughs) that's exactly what these honda bikes were like to operate (laughs) yeah (laughs) So uh, as you illuminated for everyone how ProLink works with a a, a shop uh, floor jack, I think I just did that for the Hondomatic. <laughs> what if your bullshit 80s car only had two gears and it was automatic? That's that's where we're going. That's where we're at. Um, okay, so. Honda, it's it's 1980-something. Honda has realized that, I mean, after like what, two, maybe three years of production, that this idea is just not fucking working for people. But Honda doesn't give up. Honda famously has tried everything. You know about all the weird engine configurations they've made. You know how they've tried to fit eight cylinders into four by removing part of the cylinder walls, essentially, and making oblong pistons. You know, you've heard about Honda doing all sorts of squirrely things, making flat sixes and flat fours when no one else can make that work for him. All sorts of stuff. But Honda did not want to give up on this idea of a fluid automatic drive system. And in the early 2000s, we get a little motorcycle, a precursor to the CTX in styling, really, called the DN01. And Honda moved forward with a hydraulically based transmission, which they called what, Swiggy? This is your favorite thing. The human-friendly transmission. This this is your zone. Go for it. You know, because previous transmissions were, you know, creating war crimes. <laughs> Fucking your mom. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So the human-friendly transmission. Essentially what this is is a computer-controlled forklift transmission connected to a motorcycle engine. Or, yeah, connected to a motorcycle engine. With better, quotes, gearing, but yeah. (laughs) Right. So for those of you who who aren't in the know, this is a hydrostatic transmission, which essentially means that you have essentially your final drive in the rear hub, the rear wheel hub, and you're powering it by pumping fluid through two lines, one in, one out. So kind of like where the torque converter 
it for for a moment till those bl- those um, the propeller and impeller like join. You you, you know it, there, you get a little bit of this hydrostatic action in that you are moving this through the fluid, and at, you know at at a point that you're moving it under enough that you, you know like if you hit water hard enough you can knock yourself out because it doesn't want to budge. This is the static part of hydrostatic. Sort of. Um, okay. So, anyways, the, well, the important point here is that there's a, essentially a mechanical motor in the hub that is powered by pushing fluid through it. Right. So then, the way that this works is how? Well, how do you get you know a V twin engine or a parallel? You know, how do you get a motorcycle engine to just pump fluid? Because that's the situation you're in now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how we got here, but apparently we chose this. So we're going to choose an 800cc air-cooled V-twin to do it as well. (laughs) Yeah. That's Honda's like, so when Honda's like, "Mm, we're going to, we're going to come up with this hydrostatic transmission. What, 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 what of our, I don't know, 58 different engine options that we're currently making. Should we use for it? Hey, remember that bike that no one in America wants the, um, and even, even Brits are are aware of what's that one? Uh, the, the Dowville. Yeah. Let's use that engine. Do you remember what they took on our balls with before though? When they, when they were going to put it in. Oh, it was going to be, um, a Valkyrie. It was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which would have been a much better motor. It could have been the GL1800. <laughs> Anyways, so we've got this issue of how do we take the crankshaft and get it to pump fluid? And this is the forklift part, which is essentially you have this, uh, imagine like a revolver chamber of pistons and the way that this works is this chamber sits on the end of the crankshaft and it's got what's called a a, you can imagine all these pistons sandwiched between two plates and what happens is that one of the plates swivels on one side not in the middle but on the side and what that does is it allows it to open up and change the the extension of each cylinder the the circuitry that this 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 fluid's going through uh it changes the actual length of the cylinder of the of the cylinder based on its position like on a clock face so all the cylinders are rotating, but the plate stays still. So as the cylinder goes through 360 degrees, it compresses and expands. And essentially, you just have two sides of the plate. One side that fluid is flowing in through, and the other side that fluid is getting pushed out of. Based on the fact that it's going through and it's it's changing its length based on 
its position. Right. The the gun of the 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 six shooter barrel, right, is yeah. thin in one spot and thick on another and, and all the degrees in between. So where Long it's and thinnest short, yes. the the where it's thinnest, that fluid is going through a shorter a shorter distance and it, so it has the most pressure. And then whenever it's longest it has less pressure. And these are essentially our gears. Uh not pressure but it it's displacing based on whether it's expanding or contracting well no, it's being pumped in at the same pressure obviously well or is it though i don't know not important we're, we're getting yeah <laughs> anyway this distance affects how much power it's putting on the back wheel is what you need to know yeah you know i never actually looked up how much volume of fluid there actually was in the in this transmission but i imagine it's quite a lot oh yeah and so i i can't remember what the final number was but i think they got that doville motor down to like something like 38 horsepower at the rear wheel like yeah this is not efficient (laughs) Well, it also it's probably great for torque. I mean, this is why it's used in forklifts. Yeah. I mean, you also could just achieve all the exact same things uh, by just having a CVT. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the whole purpose of this exercise is that you couldn't put CVT in the spec sheet. Right. Okay, so this moves us now to Honda's DCT system. And Honda's, Honda is very, very, very keen on saying DCT, so it sounds technical. And it's not untechnical, but... Mm, so the very... So, so DCT is not new at all. Uh, so you the first time you likely encountered or heard about a DCT motor was watching Top Gear 20 years ago and hearing Jeremy Clarkson talk about flappy panel gearboxes. Yes. And how cool it was because that was like Formula One. Now... Ferrari and whoever else were putting flappy panel gearboxes on cars. And in the early 2000s, they were kind of horrible. There was a delay on them or whatever, but you know what? It got rich people who no one ever taught how to operate a clutch to drive their Ferrari and they could drive it on the track if they wanted to or go really fast. Or at least that was theoretically possible, whether they did it or not. But what Honda took notice of was, hey, we've got this thing where you don't have a clutch and you just change gears by pressing these levers. And so don't press them. Well, see, that's the thing. At first you had to press them because what they didn't have was computer software good enough to know when to do it on your behalf. Mm-hmm. The, the the early flappy panel gearboxes for the cars would have idiot lights to tell you when to change, right? 
Right. And and there was a there was a, a way that we needed to to go through a time. It's it's kind it was kind of acting like the uh, the VTAX system to bring this back to the beginning. <laughs> Whereas it it was possible for the car to just change gears itself, right? Right. But this light comes on that says, "Hey, you should uh, you should enable this thing now and tur- and press the button." And you're like, oh, "Thank God, I'm here to press the button because <laughs> somebody else would have fucked it up." And oddly enough, this exact same setup is available on the new Goldwing DCT. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Did we, cons- did we construct this list in a specific order? So, But there's also there's an interesting thing about the dual-clutch transmission, which is um, even with all the computer-controlled stuff, the computer still has to do predictions based on where, you know, what you're going to do next. You know, crazy idea, but there's actually intent behind gear changes. So... Essentially, um, you still have the paddles to actually, or the buttons to actually change the gears up and down, even though the computer will do it normally for you. Because often the only skill involved in managing a, a, a dual clutch system is knowing when to predict that the computer's going to fuck it up. Because you'll be in situations where you're in traffic and you're in a lane that's completely blocked up and there's a free lane next to you. You start slowing down. The computer thinks, oh, you're going to want to go down a gear. But actually, you want, or it's going to think, oh, you want to go up a gear. But actually, you want to go down because you're about to slam on the throttle and go into the open lane of traffic and accelerate. So... There is a satisfying element of it because of the fact that the interesting part is when you're telling the computer that it's wrong. Yeah. Now, let before we get into how you interact with the DCT and why it's either great or horrible, like in the case of my Ford Fiesta, let, let's explain to people how a dual clutch works because it's at the same time very complicated and very simple uh it's pretty simple i mean except for the computer controlled parts of it which right we'll get i'm sure you can write a thesis paper on but essentially imagine you have a six-speed gearbox but rather than have just like the standard motorcycle dog box where you've got six gears that all attach to one uh one shaft that hooks up through the clutch to the drive shaft. Instead, imagine that you've got a normal um, shaft that ends in a clutch plate, and then you've got a second one that's actually a tube that goes over the original shaft and has an outer plate around that. So you actually have two clutch plates, an inner one and an outer one. And the inner one, it's probably the way around. Um, We've got one that is set to gears one, three, and five. And the second one 
is connected to gears two, four, and six. And what happens is you'll start off in first gear, you'll start moving. The computer will detect, oh, hey, we're kind of getting to the end of the rev range, the ideal rev range for gear one. While it's not connected, let's set the gear ratio for the second clutch plate to second gear. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, now we'll switch. And while, and what will happen is that immediately the first clutch plate will disengage, you'll be in neutral. Second clutch plate will engage, you're now in second. And it took, you know, a 20th of a second. The computer just did the gear shift for you immediately and perfectly. So the amazing thing about this is that on average, it takes an experienced race car driver like 0.6 seconds to change a gear. And this computer system does it reliably in like 0.2. Now, this doesn't seem like a huge deal, but remember in last week's episode, I was talking about how the NC750X is a weapon in the city. Right. And I said, yeah, it's only 50 horsepower. But what I should have said is it's like 50 horsepower controlled by Valentino Rossi on meth. Right. Mm -hmm. You can bang through the gears and the computer. I mean, the computer bangs through the gears for you, pre-selecting the gear to save you that 0.4 seconds, moves it over, you know, the clutch in and out electronically at the exact ideal point for best acceleration. Right. That's why you shouldn't be underwhelmed by the NC750X. If you just hold the brake in and the throttle and let it go and launch it, it will fucking go way faster than you expect it to. Right. And I mean, all... um, Dual clutch as well. I mean, if I just put my foot into it on the Fiesta, it'll go and do things that it that a that an eighty horsepower car really shouldn't be able to do. Yeah. Well, sometimes it throws a shit fit, but <laughs> well, it throws a shit fit anywhere between fifteen and twenty eight miles an hour in traffic, which it turns out is where you spend a lot of time. <laughs> where it's like, oh shit, for. Double digits, fourth gear, fourth gear. Let's go, let's go. (laughs) Well, also, the Fiesta isn't necessarily uh, programmed for best performance or acceleration. It is is programmed for best fuel economy in any situation because the only reason the Ford Fiesta was sold in the U.S. and sold with that transmission is for CAFE standards. Is just to simply allow them to continue making Ford F one fifties. That's the only purpose for that vehicle until they got the uh, the EcoBoost into uh, into effect. That is that is entirely it. What a hero! <laughs> so um, so yeah, um, DCT Honda is finally realizing its dream. And it allows them to do some other cool things. Like all of a sudden these DCT bikes have things like a reverse gear as well. Um, 
which I, I don't think they do through the starter motor anymore. I think they actually have a reverse gear in them. Does it? I think it just allows, like, I, I think so. I don't think it's electric anymore. I think I don't the DCT that. has a legit reverse. I could be wrong, but I think it does. Mm, I don't think so, but I well anyway can't confirm that. Uh, but so the DCT right, but now you can compared to the- so we were saying the flappy panel thing and the and the the idiot button. You can electronically just with your thumb go up and down through the gears on these things, or go into automatic mode, right? And that's the so. That's the crazy thing. You think to yourself, but there's all these like situations where you have to feather the clutch and do all these very like motorcycle things. But you've ridden one in in a few different situations. So kind of kind of walk us through expecting what the thing does. Uh, Well, it's just fantastic. Uh, Look, you can say you don't like the idea and you want to you want a more engaged experience and you want to. Do everything yourself because that's the way you like to ride. Totally valid. But it's absolutely invalid to say that the system isn't good because the system is excellent. Now, you can put it in automatic mode and, or I mean, you can, you can use it in manual mode and it works just like the old NC700, in which case you just get perfect shifts as opposed to... You know, perfect shifts as long as the time that you chose to shift actually made sense. But then you have the automatic mode, which will essentially just uh, operate as, you know, if you're going too slow, it'll automatically feather the clutch for you. If you're going down the road and accelerating or braking, what it will generally do is try to... uh, it will do all the gear changes based off of kind of perfect ideal driving conditions where you're slowing down. Oh, well, we better prepare the slower gear. We better prepare a lower gear because you're slowing down or, or realizing that you're coasting and you don't need this power. So we're going to switch to a higher gear. It'll do all the things that you would do under perfect, conditions but then you you still have to be on guard to actually override it in situations where you know you might slow down because you're in a slow lane of traffic and you actually need to get off onto the exit lane but you've got to punch it to get up to speed with the traffic that's in the open lane then you have to actually override and use the 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 paddles to select the lower gear when the computer thinks that you actually want the higher gear, because that is the one part of the system. That's the one major drawback of DCT is that the computer is constantly predicting what gear you're going to switch into because it has to select the gear, which is slow, but um, swapping between the two clutch plates is extremely fast. So if the computer thinks that you want a lower gear next as opposed to a higher gear, then that makes it a problem. So that's that's the actual tricky part that actually brings you back into the experience and keeps you engaged, even if you're in you know the purely automatic mode. 
Well, right. So it's funny because in this mode, it gives you the idiot lights where you're like, hmm, it's a good thing I was here to press the button. But then you do still get situations where legitimately it's like, well, it's a good thing I'm here to press the fucking button. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because yeah, because you well now you're in you're you're um you're not purely mechanically operating it. You're you are the override to say things are not going smoothly. Shit's all weird. I I need to take over. Yeah, th- there's never a mode where it's one hundred percent going to be automatic. You can always just press it and override it. Yes. In fact, the only thing that you absolutely can do is just completely turn the automation off. So you go into just essentially flappy panel mode. In fact, don't they have um, finger switches on the left and right? Or wasn't there a version of it? I think there's – was it the first version of the NC that had the the the, the like finger switches on the left and right? Uh, the first one did, yes. I believe the current one And ones- now it's a thumb. Uh, thumb and forefinger. That's right. That's right. Which I think works better. It. I. I agree. Um. Yeah. The the whole thing works. The 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 next generation of it that you rode at first, I think, on the Africa Twin. I didn't like it on the Africa Twin. That's that right. Was the, that was the first year. I think they made some updates, but also I wasn't fully. I wasn't in the right mind so i didn't fully understand it at the time well definitely by the next year honda claimed that they'd made a lot of adjustments to the computer system and then we also noticed that the amount of buttons on the handlebars somehow got smaller like as we looked at it the first time i described it as the most infuriating looking bop it in the world <laughs> Right? Like, that's what yeah. the handlebar looked like on the left hand. <laughs> it's like, this is too much. I can't. It's stressing me out just to look at it. Like, I will not test ride this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, also, I don't know that it works. If you, yeah. I think part of riding off-road is you want to be doing all that mechanical stuff. You know? I think... I think if you're into the you know the idea of riding off road, I, I don't know if the dual clutch makes sense on the Africa Twin as much as it does on the Goldwing or the NC. But I don't know. I, I mean, one of the bikes I want to buy really badly right now is an NM4 Voltus, which has the very very first version of the DCT on it, which by all accounts from all journalists doesn't work properly at all. <laughs> <laughs> which i think yeah. would just endear me to the machine even more but um yeah there we go uh let's see here right about an hour and 34 we have some emails do we want to do those or save them for the new year essentially uh we've only got a couple let's just save them. well i got another one that i think you didn't get we've got at least three uh but we can save them. It's cool. We'll just do a lot more emails next time. So do, 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 do. Um, yeah, I'll tease it. One of the emails is a submission for a Denver local, Denver local Spanish speaker who wants to come on the road to Vesperado trip. Did you get that one as well? Uh, maybe. Probably not. 
Probably not. Anyway, so thank you. You guys are the the, the submissions are rolling in. It's not like we're we're only going to accept one person to come on this trip with us. It's just the first one accepted has to be a Spanish speaker. <laughs> okay, uh, who knows? We may get like twenty of you guys coming along. We'll see what happens. All right. And I don't know this. This email looks like a like a good resume. We may be contacting him even before the next recording, just to just to kind of touch base. But you know he's gonna have to come and hang with us. Like I don't know. I'll, we'll we'll reveal more about that on the next proper episode. So uh, next week you're going to. So this is gonna be dropping for the week of Christmas. And a couple of days after Christmas, you're going to get the commentary track for the road warrior otherwise known as mad max 2 that's what's going to keep you going so we're going to enjoy our holiday and not record anything next week because it would just be murder i'm going to be up real late putting together a lot of kid shit all week and rapping shit and you know what there's just not time for it so enjoy your christmas enjoy that commentary then after that, oh, it's going to be, is there one more? No, there's not another week. Is we're, No, no. The next time we record an episode, it will be dropped in 2021. And 2020 will be over. I mean, who knows if things are actually going to get better. But at least we can just, at least we'll be able to say it won't be 20 fucking 20 anymore. Right. Okay. So this has been episode 131. I've been your host, Moto G Pete. He's been your other host, Swiggy. Mm -hmm. We're going to remind you guys to stay safe, stay tuned, and keep fighting the dragon. Let's do the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Go. Cool.